Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 45 of District of Conservation. Before I break down three important news items, I want to first and foremost thank, per usual, Real Camel Girl for sponsoring the series. It's a wonderful online community of women who champion other women going into the great outdoors, namely fishing, hunting, and shooting sports. You can check them out at realcamelgirl.com. In a scheduling note, I will be appearing on the Triggered podcast with hosts Storm Taglia and my friend, Matt Vespa this Thursday alongside Stephen Gutowski of the Washington Free Beacon. Stephen is a past guest here on the podcast and the four of us are going to dabble into the discussions relating to gun control and the very serious implications many of these proposals will have on your right to own guns and for would-be gun owners and future gun owners and those in unconventional demographics who want to own guns as well. So I won't dedicate so much time to gun control this week, but that is something you should note. I will put that out there when it's available. And I just appeared on the Bearing Arms sponsored Cam and Company show with Cam Edwards, who used to host that on NRA TV. And we discussed the problem with Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal to levy further taxes on guns and ammunition. Check that out. I've included that in the show notes, and I think you will enjoy what I have to say there. Now on to this week's pressing topic. Yesterday, the Department of Interior announced proposed changes that would go into effect relating to the Endangered Species Act. They had requested comment from various stakeholders, public input, as it relates to Section 4 and Section 7 of this law, and within Section 4, Section 4D. And I'm going to explain what this is why it's good for conservation, and how it will help bolster imperiled species that are not yet recovered or have yet to be delisted from this list. As you all very well know, or if you don't know, I'm happy to explain a little bit more, the Endangered Species Act is the landmark law that oversees the protection and recovery of species in this country. And if you didn't already know this, only 3% of species that have been placed on this list awarded either endangered or threatened status have successfully recovered. That's 54 of the 1,661 species that have been listed. What explains this disconnect of these protections and the lack thereof them being delisted? Why aren't more species recovering the root of this problem is this litigation and endless roadblock and red tape created through people weaponizing this law, namely animal rights groups and radical environmentalists, the usual suspects, meaning the defenders of wildlife, the NRDC center for biological diversity. And sadly, you're going to see a lot of even people on the left advocate for this too. But Many people have stymied 
the effectiveness of this law, especially through the courts in litigation, lawsuit after lawsuit. And that's why you're not seeing more species successfully recovered. That's why you only see 3% of total species ever being listed on this list being successfully delisted and having threatened or endangered protections removed. And many people think that if you weaken the ESA, therefore it's going to lead to a total and complete wipeout and decimation of imperiled species. That couldn't be more patently false. Don't listen to the hype from Twitter. Do not listen to the detractor. Here's an audio clip of Secretary Bernhardt speaking out on these rule changes. The reality is that the majority of the habitat species need uh, to survive is actually on privately owned land, and we need great collaboration. I cannot stress enough that a more uh, efficiently implemented act is more effective. Clarifying what actions should be considered during agency consultations will ensure that ESA implementation is more clear and consistent across agencies and even between our own field offices. By better showing our work uh, to address concerns of lacking transparency, I believe we will build greater confidence in the legitimacy and lastingness of our decisions. Going off on these changes or updates that are being made to the ESA, it's important to note the following. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service under the Department of Interior and the National Marine Fisheries Service under the Commerce Department work in concert with one another, especially under Section 7 as it relates to consultation among intergovernmental agencies. These two bureaus are responsible for implementing the ESA. And in this joint statement, here is what you can deduce from this. The ESA directs that determinations to add or remove a species from the list of a threatened or endangered species must be based solely on the best scientific and commercial information, and these will remain the only criteria on which listing determinations will be based. Regulations retain language stating, quote, the secretary shall make a listing determination solely on the basis of the best scientific and commercial information regarding a species status. This is new compared to previous language as it relates to Section 4 of the Endangered Species Act, because a lot of the times when these lawsuits are filed, the plaintiffs who are suing the Department of Interior or various landholders don't give any consideration to the economic impact that supposed threatened or endangered species have on those private properties or properties. That's an interesting update. Moreover, the press release read, the revisions to the regulations clarify that the standards for delisting and reclassification of a species consider the same five statutory factors as the listing of a species in the first place. This requirement ensures that all species proposed for delisting or reclassification receive the same careful analysis to determine whether or not they meet the statutory definitions of a threatened or endangered species as is done for determining whether to add a species to the list. While this administration recognizes the value of critical habitat as a conservation tool, in some cases, designation of critical habitat is not prudent. Revisions to the regulations identify a non-exhaustive list of such circumstances, but this will continue to be the rare to be rare exceptions. Moreover, here's I'm skipping over and here's another provision as it relates to section 7. The revisions codify alternative consultation mechanisms that may provide greater efficiency for how ESA consultations are conducted. 
They also establish a deadline for informal consultations to provide greater certainty for federal agencies and applicants of timely decisions without compromising conservation of ESA-listed species. And you can read more about what those particular changes are in terms of the language as it relates to how threatened species or endangered species are listed and perhaps bring some much-needed clarification to updating the statuses. And I think a long-held complaint among various stakeholders, especially in the outdoor industry, private landowners, and other conservationists, is the fact that outdated ESA protections are largely held on species that have recovered, as in the case of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bear, and also what has been determined recently with removing protections about whether or not to remove protections, I should say, on the gray wolf. The problem with not modifying the ESA is several fold. If you're leaving outdated protections in place, it is not scientific and it's not science-based. It's inaccurate and it's seen as a largely political move when you're purposely keeping old outdated protections on the species. Many people who are opposed to modifying the ESA think this will mean an all-out war by hunters on grizzly bears, gray wolves, and other species. That is not the case. And managed hunts when... And the second thing is a lot of these litigants are afraid of state wildlife managements taking management efforts into their hands of let's say of apex predators like the grizzly bear, the gray wolf and other species like that, when those species have fully recovered, the contention in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem last year was when the fish and wildlife service concluded that the grizzly bear in that particular region was fully recovered and they wanted to manage it with a very limited hunt in the fall of 2018. You had various different litigants again, using the purse strings of the ESA and outdated labels on it to keep this fully recovered bear, which has far exceeded its carrying capacity, well over 700 in this region. A determination that was approved by the Obama administration, believe it or not, which is not really seen as a supporter of big game hunting or managed big game hunts. I think with this update to changing how Section 4 is interpreted, it can also be good. And again, those are the concerns I laid out as to why this is so needed. This could help clarify things and help more than 3% of listed species actually recover. And yes, going back to the whole point about uh, whether or not states should take over management of certain species once they have been delisted or removed, had their threatened or endangered protections removed, it is perfectly fine for states to manage. doesn't mean you're going to see a once threatened or endangered species like the grizzly bear in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem go away. If they're not properly managed, chaos will ensue, and that's putting it very lightly. So I think in the grand scheme of things and what I outlined, I think these rules changes that were first introduced last summer, now going into effect, can bring about much-needed clarity to how this law is interpreted and how it goes forward and, and is more effective and incorporates different stakeholders. I must discuss feral hogs. Did you know that 6 million feral hogs roam this country? Many people were making light of the situation and their invasive nature, but it really is a serious problem. And I'll get to see that firsthand next week when I'm in Georgia. A writer for the New Republic, however, thinks we're to blame for the invasion of feral hogs. 
Gunning down feral hogs is gratuitous and possibly even ineffective. The Washington Post noted that Texas wildlife officials have warned that 223 caliber ammunition, the kind typically used in Air 15 type rifles, quote, may not be enough to pierce hogs' tough hides. A lot of friends have disputed that fact on social media and, and weighed in on that, so he's lo- wrong there. He proceeds. Vox's Dylan Matthews, who wrote about the feral hog tweet from a more philosophical standpoint last week, noted that more humane methods like contraceptives, contraceptives for pigs, they've tried this for deer and it hasn't worked. They're still producing in mass. Goodness. Noted that humane methods like contraceptives have been remarkably effective in managing other wildlife, wild animal populations. That option doesn't currently exist for feral hogs. The horror. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility. Since humans helped create the feral hog problem in the first place, they have an obligation to solve it in an ethical manner. We created the feral hog situation? Really? Where do these people come from? I think people are so far removed from these situations, from this actual problem of persisting invasive wild pigs like feral hogs. And hopefully they get a dose of reality soon. And I think people like me and and others who comment on media stories like this have to do a better job of educating folks like this New Republic writer about why they're extremely wrong and wrong-headed in their assertion that we're the cause of feral hog problems. The last segment I wanted to dedicate on the podcast this week is on the subject of gun control briefly. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm going to go on the Triggered podcast hosted by Town Hall Media this Thursday, so I won't waste so deeply into this, but I have to say this about all this. Red flag laws, universal background checks, expanded magazine bans, levying taxes on guns and ammunition... It seems the crazy public policy proposals that would do little to combat gun violence are dominating the airwaves. And it's getting pretty tiresome for me and other gun beat writers and commentators to have to keep track of everything. Frankly, it's getting very exhausting to keep track of all these idiosyncrasies, all these proposals and all the really knee jerk reactions to this. However, Unlike some conservative commentators out there who are going to start relying on emotional appeals when making arguments for or against gun usage, this conservative one will continue to use ethos combined with pathos to defend the Second Amendment and help offer clarity when there's a lot of confusion. It makes me very concerned to see a lot of congressional Republicans in both the House and the Senate jumping on board red flag legislation Not only that, but also legislation that likely will not protect due process rights. And to see the same individuals who have long claimed to support the Second Amendment, a few of these individuals, also say that we need to expand background checks upon existing ones that exist. And I I would expect this out of Democrat lawmakers. I'm not surprised that I'm starting to hear this from people on my side of the aisle too, when they're supposed to be defending the Second Amendment like they said they would when they were elected to office. And they're not reading carefully what this language will likely contain. This could be for anything, for a red flag law, an extreme risk protection order, same as a red flag law, expanded background checks, uh, banning of silencers, etc., etc. Republicans have to be held accountable too, much like Democrats, for pushing gun control. And this can be done civilly. You should call your lawmaker whenever these new proposals come out, when they return from recess, summer recess, 
uh, be polite, be cordial, explain the problems with supporting proposals like this, especially without due process rights, uh, duplicitous nature of these laws, the fact that they would be largely ineffective in stopping mass shootings, and encourage them to actually support real meaningful solutions, like perhaps tackling mental health more for those who are uh, troubled by mental health issues, or perhaps just encouraging people to talk amongst one another without having to deal with legislation and providing uh, and and people toning down the rhetoric in general when it comes to inciting violence, especially against uh, people who they dislike. Stephen Gutowski gave the Free Beacon made a really good point last week on Twitter when trying to explain why we're seeing the frequency of mass shootings when, in fact, violent crime is going down overall across the country. I don't have any particular theory. This is not a conspiracy theory of any sort. I don't subscribe to that type of train of thought, and I don't ever want to encourage that. It is important, though, to note that with the prevalence of this 24-7 news cycle, I feel this this 24-7 news cycle creates a lot of discord and division and inflates the frequency of mass shootings, causing a lot of ire among people. So I would hope that they would start to be more responsible, not only in not hyping up mass shootings and inflating their statistics, but also to not list the shooter's name, identity, or the like. That also contributes to the problem that we see in this country when it relates to mass shootings and how to combat them. If you enjoyed this episode, please download District of Conservation and all past episodes on Apple Podcast, which is our primary hub. We have the most listeners there and every subscribe, download, and if you feel inclined review that you possibly leave can help us reach more people. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat and to figure out and learn who upcoming guests are and what topics we will discuss. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out my upcoming appearance on the Triggered Podcast. I also appeared in addition to Bearing Arms as Cam and Company. I also appeared on the Restless Native Podcast. I hope you guys checked that out and gave it a listen. Brad is awesome.